Chapter 19 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Laszlo Beauregard. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. From the Ballot to the Bullet. The secret circular of Governor Gist, of South Carolina, heretofore quoted, inaugurated a great American rebellion a full month before a single ballot had been cast for Abraham Lincoln. This was but repeating, in a bolder form, the action taken by Governor Wise, of Virginia, during the Fremont campaign four years before. But, instead, as in that case, of confining himself to a proposed consultation among slave state executives, Governor Gist proceeded almost immediately to a public and official revolutionary act. On the 12th of October, 1860, he issued his proclamation convening the legislature of South Carolina into extra session to appoint electors of president and vice president, and also that they may, if advisable, take action for the safety and protection of the state. There was no external peril menacing either the commonwealth or its humblest citizen, but the significance of the phrase was soon apparent. A caucus of prominent South Carolina leaders is said to have been held on October 25th at the residence of Senator Hammond. Their deliberations remain secret, but the determination arrived at appears clearly enough in the official action of Governor Gist, who was present and who doubtless carried out the plans of the assemblage. When the legislature met on November 5th, the day before the presidential election, the governor sent him his opening message, advocating both secession and insurrection in direct and undisguised language. He recommended that in the event of Lincoln's election, a convention should immediately be called, that the state should secede from the Federal Union, and, if in the exercise of arbitrary power and forgetful of the lessons of history, the government of the United States should attempt coercion, it will be our solemn duty to meet force by force. To this end, he recommended a reorganization of the militia and the raising and drilling an army of 10,000 volunteers. He placed the prospects of such a revolution in a most hopeful and encouraging light. The indication for many of the southern states, said he, justify the conclusion that the secession of South Carolina will immediately be followed, if not adopted simultaneously, by them, and ultimately, by the entire South. The long-desired cooperation of the other states having similar institutions, for which the state has been waiting, seems to be near at hand, and, if we are true to ourselves, will soon be realized. Governor Gist's justification of this movement, as attempted, was, in his own language, the strong probability of the election to the presidency of a sectional candidate by a party committed to the support of measures which, if carried out, will inevitably destroy our equality in the Union, and ultimately reduce the southern states to mere provinces of a consolidated despotism to be governed by a fixed majority in Congress hostile to our institutions. This campaign declamation, used throughout the whole South with great skill and success to fire the southern heart, was wholly defective as a serious argument. As to the alleged destruction of equality, the North proposed to deny to the slave states no single right claimed by the free states. The talk about provinces of a consolidated despotism to be governed by a fixed majority was, in itself, an absurd contradiction in terms, which repudiated the fundamental idea of republican government. The acknowledgment that any danger from anti-slavery measures was only in the future, negatived its validity as a present grievance. 
hostility to our institutions was expressly disavowed by full constitutional recognition of slavery under state authority. The charge of sectionalism came with a bad grace from a state whose newspapers boasted that none but the Breckenridge ticket was tolerated within her borders, and whose elsewhere obsolete institution of choosing presidential electors by the legislature instead of by the people, combined with such a dwarfed and crippled public sentiment, made it practically impossible for a single vote to be cast for either Lincoln or Douglas or Bell a condition mathematically four times as sectional as that of any state of the North. Finally, the avowed determination to secede because a presidential election was about to be legally gained by one of the three opposing parties, after she had freely and fully joined in the contest, was an indulgence of caprice utterly incompatible with any form of government whatever. There is no need here to enter upon a discussion of the many causes which, had given to the public opinion of South Carolina so radical and determined a tone in favor of disunion. Maintaining persistence and gradually gathering strength almost continuously since the nullification furor of 1832, it had become something more than a sentiment among its devotees. It had grown into a species of cult or party religion, for the existence of which no better reason can be assigned than it sprang from a blind hero worship locally accorded to John C. Calhoun, one of the prominent figures of American political history. As a representative in Congress, Secretary of War under President Monroe, Vice President of the United States under President John Quincy Adams, for many years United States Senator from South Carolina, and the radical champion of states' rights, nullification, and slavery, his brilliant fame was the pride, but his false theories became the ruin of his state and section. Governor Gist and his secession coadjutors had evidently still a lingering hope that the election might, by some unforeseen contingency, result in the choice of Breckinridge. On no other hypothesis can we account for the fact that on the 6th of November, when northern ballots were falling in such an ample shower for Lincoln, the South Carolina legislature, with due decorum and statute regularity, appointed presidential electors for the state, and formally instructed them to vote for Breckinridge and Lane. The dawn of November 7th dispelled these hopes. The strong probability had become a stubborn fact. When the certain news of Lincoln's election finally came, it was hailed with joy and acclamation by both the leaders and people of South Carolina. They had at length their much-coveted pretext for disunion, and they now put into the enterprise a degree of earnestness, frankness, courage, and persistency worthy of a better cause. Public opinion, so long prepared, responded with enthusiasm to the plans and calls of the leaders. Manifestations of disloyalty became universal. Political clubs were transformed into military companies. Drill rooms and armories were alive with nightly meetings. Sermons, agricultural addresses, and speeches at railroad banquets were only so many secession harangues. The state became filled with volunteer organizations of Minutemen. The legislature, remaining in extra session, and cheered and urged on by repeated popular demonstrations and the inflamed speeches of the highest state officials, proceeded without delay to carry out the governor's program. In fact, the members needed no great incitement. They had been freshly chosen within the preceding month, many of them on the well-understood resistance issue. Their election took place on the 8th and 9th days of October, 1860. Since there was but one party in South Carolina, there could be no party drill, but a tyrannical and intolerant public sentiment usurped its place and functions. On the 16 different tickets prayed in one of the Charleston newspapers, the names of the most pronounced disunionists were the most frequent and conspicuous. Southern rights at all hazards was the substance of many mottos, and the palmetto and rattlesnake were favorite emblems. 
there was neither mistaking nor avoiding the strong undercurrent of treason and rebellion here manifested and the governor's proclamation had doubtless been largely based upon it the first day session of the legislature november fifth developed one of the important preparatory steps of the long expected revolution the legislature of eighteen fifty nine had appropriated a military contingent fund of one hundred thousand dollars to be drawn and accounted for as directed by the legislature the appropriation had been allowed to remain untouched it was now proposed to place this sum at the control of the governor to be expended in obtaining improved small arms in purchasing a field battery of rifled cannon in providing accoutrements and in furnishing an additional supply of tents and a resolution to that effect was passed two days later the chief measure of the session however was a bill to provide for calling the proposed state convention which it was well understood would adopt an ordinance of secession there was scarcely a ripple of opposition to the measure one or two members still pleaded for delay to secure the cooperation of georgia but dared not record a vote against the prevailing mania the chairman of the proper committee on november tenth reported an act calling a convention for the purpose of taking into consideration the dangers incident to the position of the state in the federal union which unanimously became a law on november thirteenth the extra session adjourned to meet again in regular annual session on the twenty sixth meanwhile public excitement had been kept at fever heat by all manner of popular demonstrations the two united states senators and the principal federal officials resigned their offices with a public flourish of their insubordinate zeal an enthusiastic gratification meeting was given to the returning members of the legislature to give still further emphasis to the general movement a grand mass meeting was held at charleston on the seventeenth of november the streets were filled with the excited multitude gaily dressed ladies crowded balconies and windows and zealous mothers decorated their children with revolutionary badges there was a brisk trade in firearms and gunpowder the leading merchants and prominent men of the city came forth and seated themselves on platforms to witness and countenance a formal ceremony of insurrection a white flag bearing a palmetto tree and the legend animus opibusque parati one of the mottoes on the state seal was after solemn prayer displayed from a pole of carolina pine music salutes and huzzas filled the air speeches were addressed to citizens of the southern republic orations and processions completed the day and illuminations and bonfires occupied the night the preparations were without stint the proceedings and ceremonies were conducted with spirit and abandon and yet there was a skeleton at the feast the federal flag invisible among the city banners and absent from the gay bunting and decorations of the harbor shipping still floated far down the bay over a faithful commander and loyal garrison in fort moultrie end of chapter nineteen